turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. Start reading in verse 17 and we'll read to verse 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. For they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as we open your word, we pray that it would teach us, that it would instruct us, That it would rebuke us. That it would correct us. That it would train us in godliness. Father, we pray that we would truly hear Your Word this morning. That we would truly learn from Your Word this morning. And in hearing Your Word, learning from Your Word, may we trust Your Word. And may we obey your word. We thank you. We love you. And in your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, the new year is approaching in just a couple of days. And I'm sure that many of us uh, have already begun to think about and potentially even commit ourselves to some sort of New Year's resolution. Now, I could use this time to um, poke fun at New Year's resolutions, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, I can point out how New Year's resolutions are are typically trivial and shallow, self-centered, misguided, but I'm not going to do that. I could, I could point out how poorly executed our New Year's resolutions are, and how uncommitted we tend to be when we commit to New Year's resolutions. For proof of this, you could just go to In Shape on Tuesday or Wednesday or Body Exchange. And then you could go again around the beginning or middle of March, and you will see a great difference in the number of people that are attending. But I'm not going to do that. I think for the people of God who have been redeemed by the Son, who have been lavished with grace upon grace, with love and mercy, we see this new year, a new year 
resolutions as an opportunity to start the year with a fresh mindset. And I don't think that's altogether a bad thing to engage in. It's an opportunity for us that many of us partake and see as an opportunity to start the new year with a fresh mindset, a mindset that desires to live a life that is worthy of the grace that God has been given to us. We recognize and understand as believers that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And God in His love and His grace and His mercy has united us to His Son and has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in His Son. And it's only the proper response that we might have now to ask, how then do I live a life worthy of that grace that has been given? And the assertion that I'm going to make this morning, and the assertion that I believe the Apostle Paul is making in Ephesians chapter 4 is this, that a manner of life that is worthy of the grace that has been given is a life of purity. A life of purity. Now when I say purity, I have in mind most definitely holiness. And being undefiled in a, in a moral sense. That's there. But I think it goes even beyond that. Pure also in the sense of being true. And in the sense of being consistent. Now, now if I were to hold up a, a gold bar or something gold. And if I were to say that this gold bar or gold thing is pure gold what am i saying about it am i saying something about the morality of the bar it's pure am i saying something about its morality no i'm saying that it's pure in the sense that it is true and consistent with what makes gold truly gold So I'll say it again, a life that is lived in purity, a life that is lived in consistency, consistency with the gospel and the truths and realities of the gospel is a life worthy of the grace that has been given. And Paul's going to lay out for us and tell us and show us where this life of purity is. And where this life of consistency is found. But he's also going to let us know where it is not found. So as we look at the text, we're going to start first with where Paul says this life of purity and consistency is not found. And he tells us it is not found in the life of the Gentile. But secondly, he tells us where it is found. It is in the life of Christ. So let's look at our text. And look with me actually at verse 1 to start. Because Paul starts this whole topic or conversation about living a life that's manner, um, that's worthy of the call that you've been called to. He starts that conversation 
in verse 1. Look at that with me. I therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, that being Paul himself, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I therefore, therefore being what? In light of everything I've just said, in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, everything that I have laid before you about the grace and love and the mercy of God that has been lavished upon you, the union now that you have with one another, the union that you have now with the Son, in light of all of those great gospel realities, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in fact, in verses 2 through 16, we're not going to get into this today. In fact, a year ago, I think to the day, a year ago, um, we actually walked through that section. So you can go back and listen to the first part um, of Paul's answer to this question um, from Ephesians 4, 2 through 16. But in short, he tells us in those verses that a life that's worthy of the call that you've been called to First, he tells us, is a life lived in unity. It's a life lived in unity and cultivating and pursuing unity. And now in verse 17, Paul comes back to this topic and comes back to this question. And he addresses the other piece of the answer. First, he says, you must be eager to cultivate and maintain unity. Now he's telling us, Also, in doing that, to live a life manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, you must live a life of purity. So look again where he starts in verse 17. He says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, appealing to the apostolic authority that he's received from the Lord himself, Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer live in your inner life and in your outer life. Live according to the pattern and life of the Gentile. Now, what is the pattern or life of the Gentile? He's going to go on to describe and he's going to tell us what that is just as we keep reading. Now this they say and testify on the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What's the first thing he tells us? They walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The first characteristic we see of the life of the Gentile is that the Gentile life is one that is lived in futility of mind. It's lived in vanity. It's lived in emptiness, in thought, in deed, in all things. The pattern of their life, the thoughts of their life, the trajectory of their life is set on worthlessness it's set on vanity emptiness and empty things the next thing he tells us is that 
their minds are darkened. Their thinking is foolish. They have an inability to see rightly. An inability to see and to know things truly. And this darkened mind has more than just one aspect to it. I think it has um, an intellectual aspect. Their minds are darkened. They cannot see clearly. They cannot know clearly. They cannot perceive clearly. But there's also a moral aspect to it. Their minds are darkened in a moral sense. Their thoughts and their hearts and their intentions are set on wickedness continually. It has a moral aspect to it. But this darkened mind also has a theological aspect. We're told in Romans 1 that claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did this foolish thinking lead to? It led to the exchanging of the glory of the immortal God for what? For images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. The creature rather than the creator. What's the next characteristic he shows us? Look again at verse 17. Or sorry, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. The Gentile life is one that walks in vanity, walks in worthlessness. Its mind is darkened. Its mind is foolish, unable to see and know rightly and truly. It's alienated. It's separated from life with God. It's lost. It's wandering. And ultimately, because it is a life that is an alienation from God, it's a dead life. It's a dead life. The Gentile life is one of futility, one of foolish thinking, and one of deadness and alienation from God Himself. Now, now what's the reason for this? Paul goes on to explain and to tell us where this stems from. Look again at verse 18. And start it. They are alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So first he says, they're alienated from the life of God. Why? Because they are ignorant. They're ignorant. Intellectually, yes, they don't know the truth. But also relationally, they do not know God. Relationally, they are separated from Him. Relationally with God, they are ignorant of Him. They have no communion. They have no fellowship with Him. They are ignorant. And this ignorance, this lack of knowledge, this lack of relationship and understanding of who God is, isn't due to God not making Himself known enough. The problem is not that God has provided insufficient knowledge of Himself. We know this isn't true. 
What does he go on to tell us? He says it is due because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to what? Due to their hardness of heart. Due to their very own stubbornness. Due to their very own willful and thoughtful rejection and opposition to God. They don't know God. They don't acknowledge God or acknowledge God and His ways and His truth because they do not know Him and because they reject Him. Because they are in opposition to Him. Now Paul paints this picture for us very clear in much more detail in Romans chapter 1. Turn there with me. Keep your finger in Ephesians Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 through 23 could almost lay these two texts side by side and see how they just perfectly relate to one another. But Romans 1.18 starts out, For the wrath of God is revealed, is made known from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Specifically, what has He shown them? His invisible attributes. Namely, His eternal power. His divine nature. These things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God has made Himself sufficiently clear. His power His divine nature, He has made explicitly and sufficiently clear for all creation. And what does creation, what does sin do in the hearts and lives of humanity in response to this revelation of God? In unrighteousness and in rebellion, He suppresses the truth. He pushes it down. But he can't ignore it. He can't excuse the reality. Why? Because just like when you are in a pool and you are pushing a ball down underwater, what is that ball always constantly trying to do? Come back up. And what do you have to keep doing? You have to keep putting force and pressure to shove it down and to shove it away. But you can't ultimately shove it and push it away. You have no excuse. Your ignorance, Paul says, your ignorance, your lack of knowledge, your lack of understanding is ultimately due to a willful rejection of God Himself. Now what's the fruit of all this? Let's go back to Ephesians 4. What's the fruit of this darkened mind, this alienation from God, this hardness of heart, what does it lead to? Look at verse 19. He says, they have become callous 
And they have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They have become calloused, he says. They have lost all sensitivity in their feeling, in their conscience. In their mind and in their conscience, they are hard. They lack all sensitivity. Now, we know this, this word picture of being callous, uh, or most of us do. When you work with your hands for a long time, what usually happens, right? Blisters might happen first, but then over time, those blisters and wounds, they what? They harden. So that some of us have calluses that are so strong that you could probably poke and pinch and stab at. And you feel very little pain, if not any pain at all. Because it's completely calloused over. It's completely lost all sensitivity to pain. It's completely lost all sensitivity to feeling. And Paul is saying this is what happens in the life of the Gentile, in the life of the unbeliever, that they become calloused in their thinking. They become calloused in their feeling. They lose all sensitivity. Next thing he says, they grow in, it's a big word, licentiousness. They, they, they give themselves over to the pursuit of pleasure, no matter what, without restriction. Not only do they lose control, they give themselves over. It's self-abandonment to pleasure that they pursue, Paul says. They abandon themselves to pleasure in the name of freedom. In the name of pleasure and freedom of myself to decide to do whatever it is that I would like to do. Whatever would bring pleasure to me, whatever would bring joy to me, no matter who um, cares about it, no matter what God thinks about it, I am free to pursue pleasure on my own. Whatever the cost. Self-abandonment to pleasure. And the next thing that Paul makes a note of is that they have an insatiable desire or lust for impurity. Look at what he says after he says they have given themselves up to sensuality. Next thing he says is they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Not only do they act in impurity. But he adds this word in there, they are greedy to do so. The unbeliever, the one who lives in the Gentile life, the unbelieving life, is greedy for impurity. Has a lust and an unstoppable desire for impurity. This this is not only talking about sexual impurity, but this would have been an impurity in, in this time 
and today's time that would take the forefront. They would take the forefront. They have a greed and a deep-seated desire to live an impure life. And and we're not going to do it for the sake of time, but we could go back to Romans chapter 1 and following verse 23 from 24 to 32. Similar to what we just read here in verse 19, Paul goes on in great detail, in long detail and breadth about how this fruit of a hardness of heart and darkened understanding reveals itself. But Paul kind of sums sums it up here when he says that they become callous. They give themselves over to pleasure. And they are greedy to practice impurity. And this walk, this walk that we see Paul refer to as the Gentile walk, This walk is the pattern of life that we all live from the moment we are born. Not one of us, not one person is free from this from the moment that we were born. Why? Because apart from the life of Christ, this is the only life that there is. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2. Jason read it this morning. When he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. Like who? Like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of mankind. Now we might look at ancient paganism and look at life and society today and we go, no, we've grown much more civilized. Things are much more different now. But just by simple observation, I'm going to pick some low-hanging fruit here. We know that that is not the case. For instance, go to Walmart on Black Friday and see the insatiable greed for more and more worthless stuff. I'm not saying don't, can't go Black Friday shopping. That's not what I'm saying. Got some good deals. I'm just saying, go and observe. And you will see this on full display. You can't go to Woodstock, and I wouldn't encourage you to go to Woodstock because Woodstock doesn't exist anymore, but there's lots of music festivals like that today. But if you were to go to one, if you were to think about what these are like, or maybe you did go to Woodstock back in your early days. Some of you might have. I'm not going to comment any further. (laughs) But soon you'd be hit in the face with rampant and carefree immorality. Some good music, probably too, but rampant and carefree immorality and impurity. Turn on the news. 
Turn on the news five, ten minutes and see the latest push to indoctrinate our society and our kids with the LGBTQ ideal. Or whatever else. Whatever impurity. Whatever sinful and wicked ideal and desire is out there. Just turn it on for a little bit. And soon you will see. Again, these are low-hanging fruit. I get it. And you might look at these and you go, well, I don't do that. I don't partake in those things. Okay. But examine your life. Examine your heart. And your daily surroundings. And you will see. You will see these characteristics of the Gentile life described. Maybe they manifest themselves a little bit differently. And maybe not as extreme. But they are most certainly there and present. The bottom line is this. Is that in our natural state. In our natural state, we are no less darkened in mind, ignorant, heart of heart, or alienated from the life of God apart from Christ. We are no less. The fruit of that depravity might just manifest itself a little bit differently. So what's Paul's imperative here for us? What's Paul's command? What is Paul telling us to do? Do not live in the life of the Gentile. Do not live. Do not walk. Do not pattern yourself after the ways of the unbeliever. Rather, he's going to say, rather live in the life of Christ. Which would be a life of purity. That would be a life of of consistency with the gospel, that would be a life that is worthy of the grace and the love and the mercy that has been given to us. But on what basis? What basis do we or can we live in the life of Christ? On what foundation? On what basis? Can we come to Christ and be a part of His life and to live a life in Him? Well, Paul tells us, verse 20, But that is not the way you learn Christ. But as for you, as for you who are formerly a Gentile, you were formerly an unbeliever. You were formerly following the course of this world. This used to be you. But this is not you any longer. Why, he says? He says, because you have learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. He says that you learned Christ. He says that you learned Christ. You learned His doctrine. You learned the truths about who He is and what He came to accomplish. And what that means for you as a sinner. 
alienated from the life of God. You learned Christ. You learned His doctrine. You learned the truths about who He is. You learned His way of life. You learned about the salvation that He offers and the life that He offers. You learned the Gospel. And the way of the Gospel, what you learned about Christ, is contrary, complete and total, utter opposite of your life as a Gentile, as an unbeliever. And then he says, assuming that you heard. Now, I don't think that he's ultimately really doubting that he's that they've, that they've heard and that they've believed. But he's trying to shake them up. He says, you've learned Christ. You've learned Christ. Now, I'm assuming that if, when you claim you've learned Christ, that you truly heard and were taught by Christ. You learned Christ. You, you heard Christ. Christ. I know the ESV translates it, you heard about Christ, but I think hearing Christ is a much stronger translation. You heard Christ. Not that it just, you received it in your ears. That verbally you received it by hearing. But you heard it in such a way that you believed. It was a saving kind of hearing. It was hearing in such a way that it didn't go in the ear and out the other. It was a hearing and a believing. It was a hearing about who Christ is. Who you are without Christ. It was you hearing the life that Christ offers. The life that is in Him. And it was a believing and it was a trusting in what you heard. In verse 3, assuming he says that you heard him and that you were taught. That you were taught by him. Now this is interesting as well. You were taught by him. What does he mean? Well, yeah, you may have been taught by a man preaching the word. But ultimately, you were taught by Christ Himself. You were taught as a preacher. Or someone communicated the gospel to you. You were taught through a preacher, but ultimately by the inward and effectual teaching of the Spirit of Christ. He's the one who ultimately and truly opened your ears, opened your heart, gave you understanding, gave you the ability to see the truth that is in Christ. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. So if you heard Christ, if you were taught in Christ, or if you were taught by Christ, then you have truth. You have the truth. Why? Because Christ Himself is truth. Which means that you are no longer ignorant. Which means that you no longer have a darkened mind. Which means that you no longer 
are alienated from the life of God. Why? Because Christ Himself has revealed to you the truth of who He is and the life that He offers. And in hearing truly and in believing, you receive that life of Christ. He says, but you are not so. That Gentile life no longer. Why? Because you learned Christ. You heard Him. And you were taught in Him. Now what were they taught when they heard Christ? What were they taught? We'll look back at verse 20. Paul tells us what they were taught. He says that they were taught to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you were taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. In verse 24, and you were taught to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You were taught to put off the old self. And I think a better translation of this, if some of you guys have the, the King James Version, it uses this translation. You are taught to put off the old man. Which is specifically, I think, believe that they're trying to give reference to the old man being Adam. That in Adam's fall, sinned we all. That all of us, under our life in Adam, experience this darkened mind. Experience now this walk in life of futility and an alienation from God. Callousness. Giving ourselves over to sensuality and impurity. Greedy and, and, and lustful for the desires of the flesh. That was the life and the economy and the world that came from the fall of Adam. In which all of us are a part of. From the moment that we are born. He says, you were taught in the gospel... To put off that old Adamic way of life. This is a past action. It took place at conversion when the Spirit opened your mind, opened your heart to see and understand the Gospel, to know the Gospel and to trust the Gospel. He taught you in that moment to put off the old and to put on the new. He taught you, as Paul says, that our old self was crucified with Him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, so that no one, or so for that the one who has died has been set free from sin. The gospel tells us that the old man is dead because of the work of Christ. The old man is dead. What else did the gospel teach us? It says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, this is to be a continual action of being renewed to correct thinking regarding all that you learned and all that you heard and all that you were taught in Christ. Why is this a continual action? Because we often forget. We often forget that the old man is dead and that the new has come. We often forget and we need to be reminded. It's why Hebrews tells us to, to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. 
For he who promises faithful, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why Christ gave the gifts of apostles, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to the church. To mature the body, to equip the body, to edify the body. We need to be reminded, we need to be continually in our minds, be renewed. Because we all so often look in a mirror and walk away and we forget. We need to continue to have the mirror of the Word shown to us so we remember who we were and who we are. The last thing that He teaches us in the Gospel is to put on the new. And again, I think new self is better said, the new man. Because He's not just saying that you're at the Gospel, you were taught to put on some better self-made version of yourself. But the Gospel teaches, no, the old man is dead. That old way of life is gone, is no more. It's been put to rest. It's been put to death. You are a new creation in Christ. Put on the new man who is Christ Himself. But God, being rich in mercy, because of a great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new set of clothes. You have a new wardrobe. Put off the old. Put on the new. Uh, This imagery has to resonate with most of us, if not all of us, because we all have those old clothes that for some reason we continue to wear. Despite the fact that we have brand new ones, whether it be the the whole filled t-shirt that my dad's been wearing since the 80s, or that same pair of faded sweatpants that you wear every single time you come home from work. You have a new wardrobe. The old is gone. The new has come. Lay aside that old life. Burn it up. Throw it away. Walk in the new. Walk in the life of Christ. Believers, you have a new identity and are a new creation in Christ. So live in light of that new identity and quit going back to the old way. I think Kent Hughes says it very well when he says this, that the fact is, we have this new self. 
if we are Christians. We receive the old man at birth, and we are given the new man in our heavenly birth. The new man is not our work. It's God's creation and gift. Our task is not to weave it, but to wear it. We must put on what we are. Unbelievers, look to Christ, for apart from Him, your life is one of futility. A darkened mind, separated and alienated from God. Christ, Christ is the remedy to all of what was characterized and defined in your old life. And He is the basis. He is the foundation for cultivating a life of purity. A life of consistency with the Gospel. And understanding this reality that you are a new creation. It's the foundation for living a consistent life that is worthy of the grace that has been given. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we, by your Spirit, heard your word this morning. That we heard your word, that we were convicted by your word, convicted of our sin, convicted of our need for a Savior, God, and that you revealed yourself. That you made Christ and the gospel abundantly clear to us. So that we might might trust Him and walk in Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We love You. Praise You. In Your holy name we pray. Amen.